So this whole car wash thing, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I got this joke. I didn't know if I should tell it. But, my, but go, going with the message, my conscience is clear <laughs> about it. You should buy a ticket to have your car washed because, you know, for 10 bucks you can feel what it's like to be Apple and have little kids do all your labor. <laughs> I don't have a drummer. Bam! Like Jessa said, we are having baptisms. They're September 1st. You should all come to the baptism party, even if you're not getting baptized, because it's a whole family affair. Uh, We're having tri-tip and bread. God has shown down his mercy upon element. That's right. Okay, now, if you are a believer, you've never been baptized, why not? All right, you people go, I want to know what Jesus wants me to do. Jesus said to get baptized. All right, seriously, before, get rising from the dead, getting ready to, to go up into the air, and he says, baptize people. So you want to know what God wants you to do? Get baptized. So there you go. If you haven't been baptized, sign up in the back. We will get you baptized. And then we will feed you artery-clogging food, and you will go see him sooner. <laughs> Just be amazing. Uh, if you guys don't know this, Jessa, who did announcements, she, she, meow! Wow, okay. Uh, she, she's the one, this is the brainchild, uh, all that you see here. So when you see her, thank her for it because it was, it's awesome. Yay, we're all happy. Now I'm going to beat you up with the message. Stay with me, reading God's word. Let's get going. This is Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as your people would be those who understand that you are the one who leads and guides us into all truth. And when our hearts want to fight you, we would trust you for all things. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in week two of our series on the stupid summer. It is topical where we talk about Topics, in this case, it's our own stupidity. Uh, We're going to spend 13 weeks in the stupid summer. Well, 12 now, because we did last week's last week. And we thought you could even call this the spiritual urban legends. Because there are some things that we believe as Christians that can have implications for the freedom that God intends for us to live within. Uh, I was listening to this guy tell this story yesterday about this, how he has an aunt. And his aunt believes that the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. And he goes, that's not in the Bible. And she goes, yes, it is. It's my favorite verse. And he says, that's not, so apparently she stayed up all night trying to find the verse just to prove him wrong. You know who said that? Benjamin Franklin! Right, and if you think Benjamin Franklin wrote the Bible, you need some help. All right, that dude was nuts. He was nuts. I I know someone who believes the Bible says a penny saved is a penny earned. It's not in the Bible, okay? But if you believe that that's in the scriptures, that's going to affect how you view money. If you believe a lot of churches or Hollywood's opinion, Jesus is a Swedish guy with wavy blonde hair and blue eyes who walks from town to town in a bathrobe, speaks in a British little wispy kind of voice. That could throw your understanding of the grace and the majesty and the Jewishness of Jesus a little bit off course. So in the stupid summer, what we're doing is we're going through some things to help straighten out what too many people and Christians believe are true with the Bible doesn't actually say. And I'm not saying you're stupid, though if the shoe fits, whatever, you know. Some some very smart people in our world believe some very dumb things. Now, I told you guys before, if you've been here any length of time, that I don't think I am a good counselor at all. Uh, I offend people. My empathy level is between like zero and two. 
just how it works, but somehow, almost weekly, I have a steady stream of people who want to come and talk to me. They hear me preach, and they're like, oh, he can straighten out my life. It's like weeds have grown up in it. They think I'm the weed killer, which sometimes I don't mind, because I like yelling at people sometimes, but, you know, whatever. Uh, this may be, have been you at one point. If you've never been to my office for counseling, this is kind of how it works. You talk, I listen. You talk, I listen. I ask some questions. You talk, and then I get distracted. And you, and you ask me a question, I'm like, what? And then you talk some more, because you just like to talk a lot. And then when I get the situation sized up enough, I tell you what I think, I give you some homework, I pray for you, then I send you off. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't help at all. But I'll tell you, the hardest people for me to talk to and help are those who have problems, and they, they're created by their own stupid decisions and behavior, and they still insist they have done nothing wrong. I don't know why people want to talk to me all the time when they tell me all the stupid stuff they've done, and then they say, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know why this is happening to me. Like, I was talking to a young lady a few months ago. She goes, I'm pregnant. Why is God doing this to me? And I thought, God didn't do it to you. (laughs) I think somebody else... Never mind. Okay. No matter what I say, it's all just going to sound bad at this point. So, so whatever. Uh, now, now, seriously, there's not a lot to talk about when people come in and they're self-inflicted wounds and they say, help me fix it. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. There's really nowhere to go from there. I'll, I'll give you an example. It's, it's nobody in this room. You probably don't know him, so, so that's okay. I know a guy who recently had almost all of his stuff confiscated by the feds because he attended a seminar and he read a book and talked to a guy who convinced him that the IRS and the federal income tax is illegal and unconstitutional, so he stops paying taxes and takes up the crusade. At one point, he even talks to me and tries to convince me that Element doesn't need our 501c3 nonprofit status for you to give to you. Now, we have it. Okay, we have followed the law. We're legal. Sleep well at night when you give to us. You're all, you're all okay. Anyway, this guy's bank accounts, they were seized. His home was raided. His business dealings under investigation. It puts a huge burden on his marriage, his relationship with his children. And as I'm talking to him, he lays out his rationale for his actions. I'm blown away because he claims he had done nothing wrong. And I am really still stunned to this day because this guy, he loves Jesus. He regularly gives to many causes. He invests in people. He's very intelligent. He's got a great heart and it just doesn't fit. I mean, he knows theology. He asks a lot of good probing questions a lot of times about my sermons. And I'm like, stop asking me questions, you know. But when you take an overview of scripture and paying taxes, he doesn't hear it. Watch it. Matthew 22, 19 to 21 says, Jesus says, show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. In Romans, Paul is making this argument about governing authorities, and he eventually says in Romans 13, 6, and 7, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So when you talk about this, what does the guy say? He says, we don't understand. The IRS has no legal grounds to take your money. If you pay them, you're supporting a corrupt government. And I'm not arguing that our government is corrupt. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like the, let's go back to the Boston Tea Party. What, what was that? That was taxation without representation. We have representation. It's just terrible. All right? I mean, <laughs> seriously, if you, if you want to make a difference, I'll make a political statement right now. Get rid of them all. Okay? Just, and, and vote new people in. People, oh, yeah, but you're thinking of the other party. They're all the same. It's one party. Get rid of them and let's just start over. That's, I, I don't know what that party would be called, but that's the party I'm part of, whatever it is, because they're just messing up everything. And, and no matter how many verses I show this, this friend of mine, like Matthew 17, 24 to 27, where Jesus paid taxes, it doesn't do any good. 
Now, I would also say in that, take as many write-offs as possible, okay? Don't give the government any more of your money than you need to. It's like, at the end of the year, people are like, oh, I got this refund from the government. You didn't get a refund? That's your money. It's your money. Holy cow. Okay. So this message is kind of my way of reducing my canceling load. Hopefully, as we laugh, get convicted a little bit of our own stupidity because we've all done this in one way or another. You know, just where, where no Bible verse and no legal expert can sway us from our opinion about something, even if it's wrong. Why is that? Because we buy into this Jiminy Cricket code of ethics where we trust our own conscience above everything else. We are convinced that our own most trustworthy guide is our own morality. And as long as our conscience feels okay, then everything must be okay. You know, this is the Christian urban legend of we have to let our conscience be our guide. That's why God gave us one. And actually, that's not really why God gave you one. And you may hate this message. When you get to the end of it and you'll be like, oh, I hated that. You may like it and then a week later be thinking about it and be like, no, I hated that message. So whatever it is, that's great for, for you and me. For some reason, we, we are taught and think that the Bible encourages us to trust our conscience above everything else. And it doesn't. A conscience is valuable to us, but it's not the end all of how we make decisions. You know, we, we trust our conscience like it's this internal red light, green light. And if we have peace, meaning the absence of guilt, well, then obviously this thing must be okay. I mean, if it wasn't, surely our conscience would tell us that it, that it wasn't right, right? But that misunderstands what a conscience actually is and how a conscience actually functions. That's the, the, your idea of the conscience being a trustworthy moral guide is a complete myth. This is why we started with Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We think our conscience is like a spiritual thermometer. Like it'll tell us, you know, what a situation is by sticking it into anything. Whoa, oh, what's going on over there? Boom, okay, uh, that's hot. I shouldn't step into that. Boom, oh, that's cold. I shouldn't go over there. We think that's what it does, but that's not what it does. Using the metaphor, a conscience is not a thermometer. It's like a thermostat. It's like a thermostat. Now, thermometers define hot and cold, but a thermostat doesn't define hot and cold. It simply reflects our definitions of hot and cold. We set it how we like it to be. I'll give you an example. Uh, cars newer than 2007 are awesome because they have dual climate controls. I am firmly convinced this will save many marriages today. All right? Uh, this is great for my wife and I because I'm always cold and she's like the surface of the sun. What she thinks is fresh air is like an Arctic blast off the tundra. And on my side, you can cook oatmeal. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Hers is like 60, keeps your ice cream frozen, you know, whatever. Now, if I took one of our cars to the dealership and I said, hey, there's something wrong with the car. Her side is too cold. They'd look at me like I was crazy, and they'd point out that's how a thermostat is designed to work. You said it. It doesn't define hot and cold. We define hot and cold, and it responds to our definitions. That's what a conscience is like. It's a thermostat. We set it. We determine when it kicks in and when it stays idle. It won't always tell us if you're violating God's standards. It tells you when you're violating your standards. And many times, those are two different things. Our consciences are very pliable. I don't know how often you look back at something in your life and you thought, oh, man, that was so good at the time. And now you're like, I can't believe I did that. That was so stupid. I think all of us have something like that that we look back at and do that. I'll tell you for me, I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. I attended a church a little bit before that, but didn't really follow Christ until I was 17. And I had all these ideas about what was right and wrong before I became a Christian. And then I became a Christian, and I, when I went started going to a church, all of a sudden I got indoctrinated into church culture before I really got indoctrinated into who Jesus was. I learned how to dress, how I was supposed to talk, what not to share out loud, which I still haven't learned yet. What things are funny, what things aren't funny. I still haven't gotten that one right either. You have political views and who's in and who's out, and my conscience reflected all of that. 
A lot of my spiritual mentors, when I became a believer, were legalists. They had a lot of rules. And some of them came for the scriptures, but most didn't. And I was too new to this whole Jesus thing to really understand the difference. And so I took everything they said to heart. I would feel guilty when I was tempted to lie or cheat. That, that could be a good thing, right? Yes. But I also felt guilty just being around someone who was smoking or drinking alcohol. Every time rock music came on the radio, I would, I mean, I'm a child of the 80s. You know, I, I love the, come on, feel the noise. You know, I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, oh, oh, I feel so guilty. I shouldn't like these songs. Oh, my God, you know. I, I like movies. You know, oh, mo- movies are evil. That's terrible. And so my conscience got set somewhere. But eventually, I started to follow you know, who Jesus is and read the scriptures, and my conscience didn't stay where it was in that whole legalistic place. As I grew in my faith and understood the scriptures, you know, especially Jesus making 180 gallons of wine at a wedding. You know, the Bible says God gave wine and the glad in the hearts of men. There's nothing wrong with alcohol. If you've got a problem with it and you're an alcoholic, don't drink. But, I mean, there, there are places that the scriptures talk about how God gives good wine, how it is a good thing. I had to repent and go drink a beer. <laughs> Thus says the Lord. Okay? And your conscience begins to reflect all of these things. Uh, you, you learn that a judgmental spirit is worse than going to the shumash. You know, things like that, that God is more concerned with our hearts than what's in our fridge. And so in a few years, my conscience went from these pre-Christian values to legalistic Christian values, some of which still plague me to this day, to what does the Bible actually teach? What does the Bible actually say? And sometimes it's hard to tell if my convictions even today come from God or my old spiritual mentors whispering into my head. And some of you may even know what I'm talking about even now. See, you cannot rely on your conscience for this barometer for spirituality and ethics. It's too pliable to be counted on as your absolute authority. This is why at Element we're always reading through the scriptures. We're always talking about Jesus because we trust Jesus, we trust the scriptures, and his leading. And the things that Christ tells us are very simple, but they're also kind of demanding. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4, this is one of the most telling passages in the Bible regarding the inadequacy of our conscience uh, this is Paul writing to a church who is all kinds messed up. They're asking him all kinds of questions. He's trying to answer these questions. And in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul gets to the point of his conscience. And this is what he says. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, if you have an NIV, it it clears this up a little bit, and it says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. See, that should stun you. I mean, how could the Apostle Paul not be satisfied with a clear conscience? If anyone could count on his conscience being aligned with the Scriptures and God's value system, it has to be the Apostle Paul. I mean, he just didn't know the Bible. He was writing large portions of the Bible. And yet, the more you think about his words within the larger context of the scriptures, the more they begin to make sense. We have lots of good reasons not to trust our conscience as our final arbiter. Uh, and, and you may be thinking, well, my conscience is pretty good. Well, let me just give you three reasons why you can't trust it. Number one, our sin nature has blind spots. Our sin nature has blind spots. Since Adam's fall, we all are born with this sin nature. It's why when you follow Jesus, he provides us with the power to overcome it. But it still doesn't all the time eradicate it. Every longtime Christian knows that it's not a battle won overnight. It's a stage-by-stage 
process with some significant setbacks along the way. I mean, look at the people in Genesis we just went through. You got Abraham. I love you, God. You call me. I'm going to follow you. Next thing you know, he's running down to Egypt, telling everybody his wife's his sister. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. God comes in, redeems the situation. I love you, God. I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. What's the next thing he does? He runs out and he, and he grabs his wife's secretary and has sex with his wife and makes a baby. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. God, okay. Okay, God, I love you. I'm going to follow you. For, and all throughout Genesis, you see these people. I love you, God. And just running off the rails. And this is the idea that our sin nature has blind spots. And to make matters worse, our sin nature just doesn't show up in this desire to live selfishly and to do wrong things. It also shows up in how we think about things. It clouds everything, including our understanding of spiritual truth and God's leading. This is sometimes why two Christians can come to the same thing and look at the same issue and get two diametrically opposed opinions about it, about what God wants about something. Our sin nature like puts static on the line. It's like if you have a cell phone, you ever call somebody and you're echoing back in your own ear? Don't you hate that? It's horrible. It's never happened. Lucky you, whatever, okay? But it, or you get this and it's all this crackling stuff going on. That's what sin does. You know, we're trying to follow God. We've got all this static all over the line. We have these blind spots. And the bummer is we don't always recognize the static and we never know where the blind spots are. That's why we call them blind spots. All right? The Apostle Paul understood that about himself. He knew what it was like to walk in the Spirit of God, to receive divine visitations. He, he received and gave out miraculous healing power. He knew the mind of God well enough to write the Word of God. But at the same time, when you read Romans chapter 7, he struggles with his own sins. He has to wage a constant battle with the same enemy inside that you and I wage a battle with. And believe it or not, at various points, Paul misread the leading of God. He prayed for things God didn't want him to have. He grows discouraged. He despairs for his life. He also at one point fails to offer the same grace and second chance he received when one of his young helpers bailed out in the middle of a tough mission trip. And he's like, I'm not going to extend grace back to that guy. He has a bitter split with his main mentor. He trusted untrustworthy people. He planted tons of dysfunctional churches, which is why we have all those wonderful New Testament letters that we read and teach out of, because all these dysfunctional churches. See, Paul was thoroughly human, completely saved, amazingly used. Yes, he's a spiritual giant, but thoroughly human nonetheless. And it is his recognition of his own humanity and fallen nature that caused him not to put too much trust in his own clear conscience. The second reason you'll trust it is bad data. Bad data. Our conscience is really no better than the data it relies upon. And since our consciences are no more trustworthy than the standards calibrated to, sometimes we feel good over some very bad things. I mean, as, as I said before, you know, I had like those three stages, my pre-Christian values, my legalistic Christian values, and hopefully values that I'm trying to let the scriptures lead me into today. This whole thing. But the whole time and all these other ones, my conscience is always badly out of whack. Today, a lot of people take their moral cues from everybody else around them. They say, well, the majority can't be wrong. Oh, yes, they can be, be wrong. You know, like, like surely if they, if they are wrong, God will understand because I'm just following what everybody else does. Majority does not equal morality. God nowhere promises if everybody does the wrong thing, he'll make it the right thing. He never promises that to happen at all. In fact, you can make a case in point where if everybody's deciding to do one thing, maybe you should do the exact opposite, you know, because that's kind of how that works. You know, we have this powerful influence. It's just like a gravitational pull. When everybody's doing one thing, we just want to do that as well, which leaves a lot of us with misinformed and poorly programmed consciences. And the third reason you don't trust it is a calloused heart. A calloused heart. Over time, our hearts become hard. And calluses aren't a bad thing. I mean, if you play a guitar, you know, and you have calluses on your fingers, that's great. You know, you can play all Sunday morning.
morning, all three services, and, and your fingers don't feel like they want to fall off. If you're a runner, you know, you run for a while, you get calluses on your feet, kind of deaden some of the pain so you can run miles and miles, maybe even up to a marathon if you're nuts like that, whatever. But a calloused conscience is a completely different matter. Because once our consciences lose its sensitivity, it's not good for much at all. Most of us have experienced our conscience being calloused at some point or another, some degree. I mean, if you think back to something in your life that you've continued to do, at one point you thought it was wrong, and now all of a sudden you don't even notice anymore. It's just like there, oh, it must be okay because all the bad feelings started to dissipate. Keep at it long enough and it goes away for good. And this, that can leave you with a clear conscience. But it doesn't mean that your actions are praiseworthy or good. I'll give you a, an extreme. Take Adolf Hitler. Okay? Kill six million Jews. Clear conscience. Clear conscience. I mean, you think there's something wrong with this conscience? Of course there was. Think about America today and, and the issue of abortion. We kill one million unborn babies a year in America. And seriously, people are like, oh, I've got a clear conscience. That's okay. That is not okay. It is not okay. You take it as something just as simple as um, sometimes panhandlers on the side of the road irritate me because my empathy level, again, is really low. You know, and, and I drive by, and, and it's like they're able-bodied. They could work. And if you talk to them, you ever watch some of these interviews with some of these guys? They do it because they don't have to pay taxes, and they make more money doing it than actually working. But they have a clear conscience about it because eventually your conscience becomes desensitized, and you think your actions are praiseworthy. And it just means that our, our conscience are desensitized to the point where it no longer responds when it's prompted. And to make matters worse, once our conscience gets heavily callous towards a particular action, it almost becomes impossible for us to understand what all the fuss is about when other people try to point out the error of our way. We simply just no longer get it. Our ability to feel guilt becomes gone. And, and I'm going to give you an example and if you've been in my office and I've talked to you about this, I'm not talking about you. Well, maybe I am, whatever. But there's literally hundreds at this point, hundreds of people I have talked to about this. Or I meet young couples in my office all the time who want to get married. And because they're committed to each other, they see nothing wrong with sleeping together. And I, and I don't mean sleeping together. Well, I do mean sleeping together, but I mean doing it. Okay? That, that's what I'm talking about. It's like they say everybody does it. It's just normal. They tell me that, and they all mean it. And so we talk for a while, and I explain that sex is like this covering of grace in a marriage. That today it has been totally devalued from the place of commitment of where it's supposed to be. And I explain the statistics of having sex before you get married, of living together before you get married, and how that leads to a greater chance of divorce. But their friends see nothing wrong with it. Their co-workers see nothing wrong with it either. And everyone gets dumbfounded. It's like, well, certainly I'd feel guilt if it was, if it was wrong. And you even look at the scriptures, and, and it doesn't help because they think the scriptures don't apply, or they're, or they're out of date, or it doesn't really work with them. And I will tell you, a lot of these people, they love Jesus. And the more we talk, the clearer it becomes. Their conscience isn't misinformed, it's just calloused. And no information, no Bible verse, uh, you know, no spiritual truth will change their mind. And so then i got to resort to the knock it off or I won't do your wedding, and then I feel guilty. I don't know why, you know. But if I get most people honest just for a moment, they will tell you, well, yeah, the first few times I felt kind of guilty, but then it just went away. Of course it did. And it's so odd because what happens in every other area of most of these people's lives, when it comes to matters of mercy and justice, they're like spot on. When it comes to having a heart for service, I mean, they're, they're there. When it comes to honesty and integrity, they hate misrepresentation and misinterpretation, especially of the scriptures, except when it comes to this in their life. And I've come to the conclusion that lots of people who want to let their conscience be their guide have no idea their conscience just is no longer working very well. You go to any prison, you will see this. You'll find it is filled with people who let their conscience be their guide to dire consequences. And the sad thing is you can find much of that in churches today. 
where you know that Jesus calls us to forgiveness and reconciliation, but it's like, I don't want to do that. I, and, and the longer you let it go, the harder and more callous your heart becomes, and then you don't feel like there's anything wrong with not offering someone forgiveness or offering reconciliation. And we just think it's all fine the way that we're living. I mean, I today know functional drunks and recreational potheads who staunchly defend their position and right to relax as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And they're oblivious to the pain that it's causing their family and their friends and their marriages and their careers. We all have one thing in common. And it's that at some point in our lives, we defend our actions as appropriate. We're convinced that God understands and that God outright approves of what we're doing when he doesn't. And most of us really mean it. Our consciences become clear. Most of the time, our consciences are clear just because they're no longer working. So you may ask a question like, so why does God give us a conscience? If it's so undependable, why do we even have one? What's it good for? I'll give you two reasons why God gave it to you. Number one, it's a great early warning system. It's a great early warning system, unless it's been neglected to the point of these deep calluses. It will inform you when you're about to violate your own moral standards. The second reason that I think God gives it to us is it can be realigned to the scriptures. Our consciences, this whole ease of adjustment, can actually be a really good thing. It means we have the ability to recognize what's going on and align it to the scriptures. We put Jesus first in our life and all things and constantly do that, and our consciences will come around. And the more accurately we do so, the greater we have the ability to recognize and avoid the deceptive lures of sin. What you have to understand is I am not preaching to you morality. That is not what I'm doing at all. A conscience helps if you listen to it. We are made in the image of God, and a conscience will speak to that. But you have to understand no matter how good and clear your conscience is, a good conscience doesn't save you. It does not save you. Today, many people around the world that Christians talk to and talk about the gospel, you know, they don't understand what the gospel really is because we base it all upon morality. And I know a lot of people who are more moral than most Christians I know. These people say, well, I'm a good person. I don't need God. And they are good people. But the essence of the Christian faith is not moral people. It is people who are connected to Jesus and life changed the relationship with him. That's what the gospel is. Conscience is good, but it is insufficient for relationship with God. This is why we surrender our entire lives to Jesus and why we trust him in all things. This is why our priority, first and foremost, is Jesus at the center of our lives. Because when he is there, our pliable consciences begin to be molded into something that God can set the thermostat of and not us. This is why we encourage you to read the scriptures. I mean, in the back, there are Bibles. If you don't own one, you can have one. Take one. If you're like, I don't know where I laid my Bible last week. Well, take one home with you. It's why they're there. Read the scriptures. You should be involved in a gospel community so you can have other people around you that can look at your stupid things that are going on and be like, hey, that's stupid. No, it's not my conscience is clear. Well, your conscience is stupid. You know, you've you got people around you that can call you on things you need to actually be called on. This is one of the reasons we offer you prayer, but we, should tell, but we tell you you need to be praying like every day. You know, hop in your car, drive into work, do whatever, walk in the dog, you know, pray. Hey, God, I'm driving somewhere. You just start talking, communicating with him, allowing him to reset your focus. You do this daily, weekly, monthly, every day of your life we do this. Because it is God who is the truth and God who resets us and shapes us where we need to be. And this, again, is one of the reasons every week we come to that place of communion. Because communion resets us. It helps us to understand who God is and what he has called us to. That's why you break that cracker that resembles Christ's body, which was broken for us. It's why you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Because it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because he is the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith. It is not your conscience that does that. It is Jesus who is your Savior, not 
your conscience. So focus on him and worship him and allow him to reset that internal barometer in your life so you know what is right and true. The band's going to come up. Do a couple songs. And as they do, you're invited to take communion, as I said, uh, to, to understand what the point of it is, you know, to lay all of our burdens at his feet and realize that he is the one who has saved us and redeemed us and sought us. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, maybe your conscience is badly out of whack and you want it to be more in whack. I don't know. <laughs> They'd love to pray with you about that and talk to you about that. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship, so we don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. And then there's food and stuff in the back, and that food is there to help you guys get to meet some other people so that you can be a people who connect with others, who can help hold you accountable and help lead you also into a place where we honor Christ with all of our lives, with everything that we do. You know, again, you are not meant to live in guilt. You are not meant to live in shame. You're meant to live in hope and grace. And when we follow Christ, all of those things simply begin to become more and more natural because he is the one who saves us. Uh, let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand uh, what you have been doing throughout the course of the scriptures. That it is those who trust in the Lord that renew their strength. Because it is you that sets us and resets us. Because we, quite frankly, are a people who need it. So often we get off course thinking that, that we get to decide what is right and wrong for us and right and wrong for everybody else around us because we let our conscience begin to do that instead of you. And so today, get a hold of our hearts. Have us understand that the place of the cross, you wiped away our sin at the resurrection, you brought us all to life and relationship with you again. And in that, we are to be a people who follow you first and foremost as you reset our hearts and our hearts' desires to more accurately reflect you. And when we have things that come into conflict, we always trust you because you are the one who made us and you are the one who know us better than we know ourselves. So today, have us be a people who begin to walk with our focus reset to who you are and your grace and goodness extended to all of us. We ask this in your son's good name.